This is History 2311, Week 4A, Woodrow Wilson's War. There's a kind of a classic question in U.S. history and in the history of the United States place in the world. And this question asks, has U.S. foreign policy over the years been driven by ideals or by self-interest? And there's a related, although not identical question, which is, should U.S. foreign policy be driven by ideals or by interests? So for instance, if the United States goes to war in defense of democracy or uh, self-determination or to, you know, to liberate, to set free the people of Iraq or Afghanistan or defend human rights in some distant corner of the globe. That is a policy driven by certain ideals. But if the United States goes to war to secure access to oil reserves or protect US corporate investments or to maintain military dominance in some strategic region, that is a policy driven by calculation of national interest. One reason this question keeps coming up and, and maybe is so hard to answer is that American policymakers over the years and especially American presidents always insist that you don't have to choose. Uh, so here's George W. Bush in 2005 asserting, insisting that America's vital interests and its deepest beliefs are one and the same. So what appears to be a war to secure American companies permanent access to Middle Eastern oil is actually a war to bring democracy and freedom to Iraq. And American ideals and American self-interests just happen to line up. And this framing always used to aggravate me. I, I would say, you know, if you want the oil, just admit it. If you're going to war to enhance American strategic power, just admit it. Don't claim some high-minded purpose. And I got to say, it's not only Republicans who do this. Here is Obama's inaugural address four years later saying almost exactly the same thing. We reject as false any choice between our safety, that is our security interest, and our ideals. Our power and our security comes, Obama insists, from the justness of our cause. And this way of talking, of insisting that American self-interest and America's highest ideals were actually one and the same, this way of refusing to distinguish between them has, has been common to just about every president over the last hundred years. And as I say, I used to find this very irritating, but be careful what you wish for. Because in 2016, Americans elected a president who broke from this language almost entirely. 
Now, you can debate whether or not the foreign policy followed in the Trump years. I won't call it the Trump foreign policy because I don't think he was running the show. Whether the foreign policy followed in the Trump years represented a real change from previous administrations. But at least rhetorically, in the world of speeches, Trump was so completely uninterested in high-minded ideals or so unconvincing, so uninvested in keeping up this this high-minded rhetorical tradition that he broke from it almost entirely. Trump presented foreign policy in almost entirely self-interested terms. Are American allies paying their fair share or ripping us off? Are they taking our jobs? Do we have good trade deals? He made very little distinction between democratic nations that were the United States historic allies and autocratic dictatorships that were ostensibly its enemies. If anything, he seemed to show more affinity for the autocrats. And the idea that the United States might act in the world out of a abstract commitment to democracy or self-determination or some ideal like universal human rights came to seem quaint, like a relic of the 20th century. For most of the 20th century, the big criticism of American foreign policy was that it was too idealistic, too driven by abstract ideas, that Americans thought it was their God-given mission to save the world, to fight for freedom everywhere, and that this led, almost inevitably, to endless little wars. American historians have a couple of names for this worldview, for the idea that the United States is not just a country like any other, the idea that it has a special purpose, that it should rise above narrow calculations of national interest and act in the global universal interests of all humankind. This is sometimes called American exceptionalism. Uh, Ronald Reagan liked to invoke John Winthrop's phrase, a city on a hill. But in the 20th century, historians very often called this worldview Wilsonian after President Woodrow Wilson, who was one of the most important exponents of this worldview. And really every president from about Franklin Roosevelt to Barack Obama, whether Democrat or Republican, was to a greater or lesser degree a Wilsonian. Some of them just rhetorically, just in their speeches, but many of them in their hearts. And in my lecture today, I wanna explore the origins of this worldview in Wilson's response to the First World War. But there's also another paradox I want to explore. Wilson, who articulated this lofty vision for his country, this high-minded, inspiring vision that shaped American foreign policy for at least a century, was also an active and unapologetic racist. And he wasn't racist just in the kind of thoughtless way that, say, Teddy Roosevelt could be racist. Roosevelt was, I would say, a man of his time. But Wilson went out of his way to be racist. Wilson went out of his way to protect and expand white supremacy. What most people know about Wilson's racism, if they know anything about it, was that he famously screened the movie uh, Birth of a Nation in the White House. And Birth of a Nation is a film from 1915 that tells the story of Reconstruction. In particular, it tells the racist myth of Reconstruction that kind of was used to justify Jim Crow segregation and froze many conservative Americans in kind of permanent opposition to social change. But Wilson didn't just watch the movie, he endorsed it and he was quoted in it, praising the Ku Klux Klan. And while the Reconstruction era Klan was destroyed back in the 1870s, the film Birth of a Nation helped bring about its rebirth in the 1910s and 20s. We'll talk more about that next lecture. 
But it's not just his association with birth of a nation. Wilson was an ardent, active segregationist. Here's a quote from Wilson in 1914 when he told a group of African-Americans who were fighting against segregation, he said, segregation is not a humiliation, but a benefit and ought to be so regarded by you gentlemen. When he was the president of Princeton University, Wilson effectively resegregated Princeton, pushing out African-American students. And when he was president of the United States, his administration rolled back the very modest gains that African-Americans had achieved in 50 years of fighting against Jim Crow. In particular, Wilson resegregated the civil service. In late 19th and early 20th century America, one of the only places that an African-American could find a well-paying kind of middle-class job was in the federal government, something like a post office or a government printing office or the Census Bureau or the Bureau of Veterans Affairs. Wilson's government forced out African-Americans or demoted them. In particular, they fired or demoted any African-American who might have white workers working under them. So when we talk about Wilson's racism, he wasn't just a man of his time. His racism was real and deliberate, and it had real consequences. Now, until recently, Wilson was not primarily remembered for his racism. He was remembered for leading the United States during the First World War. He was remembered for how he made the case for America's entry in the war, the idea of a war to end all wars, a war to make the world safe for democracy. And Wilson articulated this high-minded vision for America's active role in the world that I was just talking about. And when historians talk about Wilson, they usually focus on one story or the other. They either focus on the story of World War I, the war to end all wars, the League of Nations, Wilson's attempt to remake the world order. Or they focus on Wilson's racism, birth of a nation, bringing Jim Crow back to Washington, segregating the civil service. What I wanna to ask today is, what is the relationship between these two stories? Is there a relationship between Wilson's high-minded ideals and his racist deeds? Or is it the other way around? Is it racist ideas and noble deeds? Or is it possible for it to be both? In June of 1914, a Serbian nationalist in Sarajevo, Bosnia, assassinated the Archduke Franz Ferdinand, who was the heir to the throne of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And this act set in motion a chain of events that plunged Europe into the most devastating war the world had ever seen. The Austro-Hungarian Empire declared war on the little country of Serbia, but Russia mobilized in support of Serbia. Then Germany, which was an ally of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, declared war on Russia. And knowing that Russia was allied with France, Germany invaded Belgium and France. So then France and Britain declared war on Germany, and within a month, all of the European powers, along with Japan and the Ottoman Empire too, were all at war. Now, the United States stayed out of this war at first. They saw little reason to become involved. Many Americans certainly sympathized with Britain and France, and they saw them as the good guys. They saw them as more democratic than the central powers, Germany and Austria-Hungary. But, you know, there were plenty of German Americans, Italian Americans, Americans from Central Europe who did sympathize with the Central Powers. And the First World War was not a clear-cut case of democracy against autocracy. I mean, Russia under the Tsar was not democratic. You could easily interpret this war as a struggle of competing imperialist powers. And a lot of Americans saw little reason for the United States to become involved. 
Wilson took the same point of view. He proclaimed American neutrality. He tried very hard to keep the United States neutral despite rising tension. Indeed, he thought the most useful thing the United States could do would be to be neutral, to help negotiate a truce. But the, the warring powers showed little interest in American mediation. In 1916, after four years as president, Wilson won re-election on the slogan, he kept us out of war. He presented this as his great achievement that he had managed to keep the United States from getting involved in the conflict. Now, I'm not going to go through all of the events that led to American involvement in the First World War. Your textbook can tell you the story of the German U-boat campaign, the sinking of the Lusitania, uh, the famous Zimmerman telegram. And your primary source readings for this week include a series of speeches from Wilson, which you can use to track the gradual evolution of his thinking from neutrality towards war. I'll just say for now that Wilson was truly, sincerely reluctant to go to war. This is a famous quote attributed to Wilson in which he worried about the effect that war would have on the American character. Lead this people into war, he said, and they'll forget there was ever such a thing as tolerance. But as the war raged on, Wilson became more and more convinced that the world order was irrevocably broken. And not just that the war had to be ended, but that war itself had to be ended. That this kind of modern, industrialized, total war was so horrific that war itself was no longer a useful or reliable tool of politics and democracy. And, and this meant, in Wilson's mind, that the whole world order had to be remade. And Wilson came to believe that if Americans stayed out of the war, they could play no part in shaping the peace. So the only way to fulfill this dream of remaking the world was to fight in the war. In April 1917, Wilson went to Congress and asked for a declaration of war against Germany. And in that declaration, he said, the world must be made safe for democracy. I asked at the start whether American policy was driven more by ideals or interests. And Wilson is often seen as the exemplar of an idealistic foreign policy. But Wilson argued that in the modern world, the two are the same, the selfish calculation of national interests and a universal sense of America's global mission would both lead you to the same conclusion. Wilson argued that America's national interests were in fact global or universal, and that the best way to serve America's national self-interest was to bring freedom and self-determination and democracy to the whole world. And this is a really audacious and ambitious vision that has defined American foreign policy for most of the last century. You may have heard of Woodrow Wilson's 14 points. In January 1918, just as American troops started arriving in Europe, Wilson issued the 14 points, which were his clearest statement of American war aims and his vision of a new international order. In writing the 14 points, Wilson was responding in part to the Russian Revolution, the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia. Communists took power in Russia, creating the Soviet Union. They dropped out of the war and they published the secret treaties by which the allies, that is Britain and France and the old Russian Tsar, had agreed to divide up conquered territories after the war. And this, this was a big embarrassment to Wilson and to the idea that the war was being fought for some moral cause. To reassure the United States and maybe to reassure himself that this war was a moral war, 
Wilson issued his list of 14 war aims. The key principles in the 14 points included free trade, freedom of the seas, open diplomacy, which meant an end to secret treaties, and probably most important, self-determination for all nations. In other words, small powers, Wilson said, could no longer be ruled by large powers. Every people in the world should determine how they would be ruled. Wilson also talked about an adjustment of all colonial claims. He said colonized people should be given equal weight in deciding their futures. And finally, he called for the creation of a general association of nations, a league of nations, to preserve peace, an organization that would ensure that international disputes in future could be settled by peaceful negotiations rather than war. Now, remember when I was talking about progressivism, how progressivism moved from the street level, Jane Adams trying to get garbage out of the streets, how it grew from the street level to the city, to the state, to the national level. Wilson's 14 points were in a way progressivism on the international scale, on the world scale. The progressives believed that if you studied a problem in a disinterested scientific way, you could find a common good, a solution that would benefit everyone. And the 14 points were Wilson's attempt to do this to the whole world. And this is probably the reason that Wilson is sometimes remembered as a kind of starry-eyed idealist. The 14 points really combine a very ambitious idealism with a particular interpretation of American self-interest. I'm not gonna to say too much about the war itself. Uh, when we get to the Second World War, I will do more with military history. The First World War in a lot of ways is not an American story. US troops only arrived in the spring of 1918. Certainly their arrival did help to turn the tide of what had become a grisly stalemate. Military technology at the time of the First World War made it much easier to defend a position than to attack it. And so the way the war was fought was that both sides kind of hunkered down into trenches. There was kind of a gruesome synergy between the technology of the machine gun and of barbed wire. Barbed wire makes motion across, moving across territory difficult and painful and slow. And then if you set up a machine gun at the other end of that barbed wire, it makes it impossibly deadly. So the First World War did not involve huge movements of troops or uh, brilliant tactics or strategy. Mostly it involved both sides hunkering down in the mud for a long grinding war of attrition. When American troops did arrive in Europe in 1918, they helped to repulse the last German advance. And by July, the Americans were participating in a major allied counter offensive. By fall, the German economy had collapsed. The German army was exhausted. They were literally starving. And Kaiser Wilhelm, the German monarch, abdicated his throne on November 9th. Two days later, the German high command sued for peace. 100,000 Americans died in the First World War, which is a substantial number, but was only something like 1% of the 10 million people killed in that war. The main thing I want to say about the actual waging of the First World War is to point out the dramatic contrast between Wilson's idealism and the horror of this war, this modern mechanized war that was really just a meat grinder, a kind of pointless slaughter. People called the Great War a war to end all wars. And when they said this, they didn't just mean that for moral reasons. They also meant that the horror of this war suggested that war 
no longer worked, that, that war on this scale uh, made a mockery of whatever reason you had for fighting, that, that no matter what you were fighting for, war at this level was a colossal waste. Which brings us to the Treaty of Versailles. When President Wilson arrived in Paris in 1919 for the post-war peace talks, two million people came to greet him. It was the largest crowd in French history. Now, you, the leaders of Europe didn't always know what to make of Wilson and his kind of pious moralizing. They rolled their eyes at the 14 points. Georges Clemenceau, who was the prime minister of France, famously said, God only needed 10 commandments. But the people of Europe and really the people of the world responded to Wilson and the 14 points with an outpouring of enthusiasm. Here's a quote from H.G. Wells, the author H.G. Wells saying, for a moment, Wilson stood alone for all mankind. He became a kind of Messiah. Wilson's words and speeches reverberated across the globe. In particular, his idea that government must rest on the consent of the governed, that all people in the world should be able to determine their own futures. This idea resonated all over the world, especially among colonial peoples seeking independence and oppressed minorities. Remember how much of the world did not have self-determination in 1914. I mean, this was a world of empires and colonies. And so around this world, people heard Wilson talking about self-determination and took his words to heart. In Eastern Europe, the former subjects of the Austro-Hungarian and the Ottoman empires regarded Wilson as a saint. In India, still ruled by the British, the Indian independence activist Srinivasa Sastri compared Wilson to Christ or Buddha, calling him one of the great teachers of humanity. Meanwhile, back in the United States, Wilson's Secretary of State, Robert Lansing, warned Wilson that the phrase self-determination was, quote, loaded with dynamite. Lansing warned Wilson of the, quote, danger of putting such ideas into the minds of certain races. He said this would inspire impossible demands that Wilson would raise hopes that could never be realized. And Lansing was right. Wilson's words spread farther than Wilson ever intended. In Egypt, which was under British rule at the time, nationalists translated the 14 points into Arabic, and Saad Zaghloul petitioned the Versailles Conference for Egyptian independence. In Korea, nationalist leaders, uh, Korea at the time was ruled by Japan, they drafted their own Declaration of Independence, and the March 1st movement in Korea began as an effort to draw the attention of Wilson and the Versailles Conference to Korean claims for independence. And ultimately this grew into a broader movement against Japanese rule. In India, young Gandhi, who had formerly supported Indian membership in the British Empire, now inspired by Wilson's words, used those same words to argue for India's independence from Britain. And in French Indochina, what is now Vietnam, uh, a young assistant chef from French Indochina named Guyan Tan, who was working in Paris, wrote a petition to Wilson. He actually like rented a formal suit and, and went to Versailles to try and meet with him to make a case for the independence of French Indochina. This meeting never happened. I mean, Wilson or his staff received hundreds of similar petitions, and it's very unlikely that he read more than a few of them. But we remember this particular petition because this young man would later 
turn to communism instead of Wilsonian liberalism, he would change his name to Ho Chi Minh and would become the leader of Vietnam's fight for independence. And so it went all over the world, in Ireland, in the Middle East, in Africa, people heard Wilson's call for self-determination and came forward to press for independence from their own imperial masters. There's a great book uh, by a historian named Erez Manella that calls this the Wilsonian moment. The outpouring of hope at the end of the First World War, the seeming possibility of change, not just gratitude that the worst war in history was over, but hope that a new world could be built on the ashes of that war. And this hope reverberated in the United States too. Back in the US, African-American activists like W.E.B. Du Bois used Wilson's language of self-determination to demand civil rights for black Americans. But you probably already know how this story ends. The Treaty of Versailles and what followed after is one of the great disappointments of modern world history. People argue about who was to blame, but there is plenty of blame to go around. Here's a bit of a timeline, and once again, your textbook can help you with all of the specific events that I'm kind of glossing over. A big part of the blame for the failures or limitations of the Treaty of Versailles has to go to the European allies. The British and the French and the Italians, they had no plans of a peace without victory or a new post-imperial order. They just wanted to carve up their old enemies, carve up Germany and Austria-Hungary and the Ottoman Empire. They wanted reparations. They wanted their old enemies to pay for the carnage and devastation of the war, but they had no plans of giving up their own empires. Here's a map of Europe before the war, and here's how the Treaty of Versailles redrew that map. So Versailles created a bunch of new countries in Eastern Europe and carved new territories uh, called mandates out of the old Ottoman Empire, places like Syria, Lebanon, Iraq, and divvied all those up among the victorious allies, Britain and France. But they didn't free Egypt or India from British rule. They didn't free Indochina or Vietnam from the French. Wilson spoke of self-determination, but he didn't force this on the other allies. He didn't really have the authority to do so. Some of the blame for the failure of Versailles and particularly the failure of the League of Nations has to go to Americans and the Republican Congress. As the Treaty of Versailles fell farther and farther short of Wilson's noble ideals and began to look more and more like pretty much exactly the sort of imperial horse trading that Wilson had said was over, uh, Wilson came to pin more and more of his hopes for the post-war world on this new League of Nations. But when he returned to America, Congress, which was largely controlled by Republicans and most Americans balked at joining the League of Nations. They didn't wanna join this organization. They said joining would commit the United States to kind of open-ended involvement in other countries' affairs. They remembered George Washington's old warning to avoid foreign entanglements. And they argued that the League would deprive the United States of its freedom of action, that it would be endlessly pulled into wars on behalf of other states. In November 1919, and again in March 1920, the U.S. Senate voted to reject the Versailles Treaty and refused to join the League of Nations, a heartbreaking, devastating defeat for all of Wilson's hopes for the war. But I got to say, I think Wilson himself deserves a lot of the blame not just because he refused to negotiate with Congress over the treaty, although he did, but 
because he didn't live up to his own ideals, to his own words. Here's Wilson, a quote from Wilson complaining that people expect too much. The hungry expect us to feed them. The ruthless look to us for shelter. People around the world seeking independence took Wilson's words more seriously than he did. He raised their hopes and then he complained when they took him at his word. Wilson could have pressed the British and the French harder than he did on colonial self-determination. He could at least have pressed for independence of some of the former Ottoman Empire holdings instead of just divvying them up. In some cases, he actively worked against ideas of self-determination. The, uh, the Japanese uh, wanted to include a clause in the League of Nations Charter recognizing the equality of all people regardless of race. But Britain and the United States and Wilson opposed this because they feared it would make it impossible to enforce racially exclusive immigration policies. So they blocked that clause and kept it out of the League Charter. So the history of Wilson's racism is not separate from the history of his idealism. It's not separate from the history of his foreign policy triumphs and failures. And the tragedy of Versailles is not only that it failed to bring a stable peace to Europe, that, that the peace would collapse in only a few years into the Second World War. Also, it was a tragedy of disillusionment, as Wilson's words raised the hopes of the non-European world that the post-war order failed to deliver. And once again, we confront this question of words and deeds. In one way, Wilson's words were hollow. It seems that he didn't really mean what he said about self-determination. Or maybe he only meant it for white-skinned peoples living in territories previously controlled by the central powers. But in another way, Wilson's words outlasted him. I, I talked before about how they shaped American foreign policy, not so much in the 1920s and 30s, but in the Second World War and in the Cold War and in the War on Terror. The U.S. would return again and again to this Wilsonian narrative that you know, we don't want foreign entanglements, we don't seek them, but the world situation is so dire that the world requires American leadership, that the United States is the indispensable nation. In that way, every president from Roosevelt through Obama has been a Wilsonian. But Wilson's words shaped the rest of the world too, and in ways that sometimes came back to haunt the United States. In the years to come, colonial people all over the world would invoke the Wilsonian language of national self-determination in order to support their own fight for independence. Sometimes the United States would welcome these independence movements, sometimes they grudgingly accepted them, and sometimes they actively fought against them. So Egypt's revolution of 1919 grew directly out of this Wilsonian moment. India would not gain its independence from Britain until 1947. But Gandhi returned to India after 1919 and began his non-cooperation movement, the campaign of civil disobedience that eventually did win India its independence. In Korea, the March 1st movement, begun on March 1st, 1919, marked the beginning of the Korean fight for independence from Japan. In China, there was a similar movement called the May 4th movement, began on May 4th, 1919, after details of the Versailles Treaty reached China. 
Japan had fought against Germany in World War I and captured the Shandong Peninsula, part of China, which had previously been controlled by Germany. The Versailles Treaty let Japan keep control of these former German holdings in China. And this was viewed in China as a great betrayal. It led to massive strikes and demonstrations, to boycott of Japanese products. And years later, after the communist revolution in China, when the communists took power in 1949, leaders like Mao Zedong would look back on the May 4th, 1919 movement as the key intellectual turning point that radicalized Chinese intellectuals. They had previously been kind of attracted to Wilsonian liberalism, but the Treaty of Versailles, Mao said, convinced them that Wilsonian moralizing was just Western-centric hypocrisy. Sun Yat-sen, who is revered in China as the father of Chinese independence, said in 1929, Wilson's proposals once set forth could not be recalled. They stirred the world with a new consciousness. When they saw how they had been deceived by the great powers, they realized they had to fight on their own for self-determination. And that assistant cook who was snubbed by Wilson at Versailles went back to French Indochina, went back to Vietnam and took up the fight for independence against the French. When the Vietnamese declared their independence from France in 1945, that young cook who changed his name to Ho Chi Minh quoted the U.S. Declaration of Independence and Wilson's 14 points in Vietnam's Declaration of Independence and then fought a ferocious 30 years war with France and with America itself to win independence for Vietnam. So the point of all this is that Wilson's words had unintended audiences and unintended consequences. And maybe in the end, I do prefer a kind of high-minded Wilsonian hypocrisy over a Trumpian cynicism. Anti-colonial actors all around the world would make Wilson's words true and historic and lasting and valuable in a way his actions did not. Thanks for watching. Look forward to talking about this with you on the internet. We'll be over, we're coming over. We won't.